Welcome to Risk Never Sleeps, where we meet and get to know the people delivering patient care and protecting patient safety. I'm your host, Ed Gaudet. Welcome to the Risk Never Sleeps podcast, in which we discuss the people that are protecting patient care. I'm Ed Gaudet, the host of our program, and I'm pleased to be joined today by Shankar Somasundaram. And Shankar's the CEO and founder of Assimilate. I love your tagline, by the way, healing the devices that heal. Really tells you everything you need to know about what you do, I think, in a nice, concise way. So I assume you're still using that as a tagline or? Yeah, I mean, we are. I mean, we are basically the company evolves. You're kind of still looking at a tagline, but we are using it for now. Okay, excellent. So tell us more about Assembly. Tell us more about what you're doing, how you work with customers. So I started Assembly in late 2017. Our focus is really around helping health systems secure and manage their medical and IoT devices in the healthcare environment. So today we are working with pretty much health systems across the globe in US and Europe and in Asia in helping them understand what devices are there in the environment, helping them with prioritize the most uh, critical devices from a vulnerability perspective, help them mitigate it with uh, our proprietary recommendation, find out what kind of risk or anomalies are there, help them uh, from forensic analysis perspective, help them from an asset utilization perspective, pretty much go across the entire spectrum of use cases from inventory, cybersecurity, and operational management. And we work with health systems which are pretty small to mid-size to very large health systems that are spread across states, countries, and thousands of beds across the organization. And we share an investor and a customer. That's right. We do. <laughs> In memorial care. That's memorial right. Time. And uh, I mean, they have been a great partner, I would say, along the journey. I'm sure it's the same for you all. Mm-hmm. That's why I would designate them now. And the good part about healthcare is there are organizations like Memorial Care who become partners, more than customers or investors. They become partners along the journey, and that's the beauty of healthcare. That's right. Nothing like a customer that is much more than just a customer, but they are true partner. They work with you in not only helping understand their problems and how you can solve for them, but they really help you build your business, which is pretty cool. Exactly. So how did you come up with the idea? So I used to run the IoT business at Symantec and I I had started it. So I had initially designed the strategy for Symantec on what they should do in the entire, broadly speaking, IoT space, enterprise IoT space, if I can put it this way. And then when the time came to start the business, they chose me. I had a product and engineering background before, so I started it. And through that journey, I ended up looking at different verticals, retail, industrial, healthcare. And then as I grew, as I dug deeper into healthcare, I found aspects of healthcare. I mean, I already had a background, some background with healthcare. So I found aspects about this entire device management space in healthcare pretty fascinating. And it became clearer to me that this was a problem that needed to be solved differently from IT devices and, you know, over a sequence of events that led to this, but that finally led me to starting Assembly. And is there any relevance to the name in what you do, or is it just the name that you picked? Or Yeah, Assembly actually means to assimilate data. So, you know, it, there's a bigger story around it, but in short, really the idea is we assimilate different data sources, whether it's network, documents, uh, network sources, logs. I mean, we're pulling everything together, online sources, our own research, and that's what it's really is. It's really a data analytics platform fundamentally, which is being purpose-built to solve these problems. And so Assembly was the fundamental idea that we would assimilate all this data and analyze it. Yeah, and that's how it was born. Now, how did you get into healthcare? I wanted to be a doctor long ago. So there I, it is. Been, There's the personal story. <laughs> I've been wanting to be a doctor long ago. I even cleared my medical entrance uh, in India and I was about to go in and enroll in a top college and a series of circumstances didn't allow me to be that. But 
I've done other stuff in healthcare. I ran a remote healthcare monitoring. I built a remote healthcare monitoring product in India. Mm-hmm. You know, I actually built like this app long before in India, which actually allowed you to figure out when you needed blood, who was the nearest donor, who matched your blood type. So there's some stuff I've done. A lot of people in my family are doctors, my cousins and so on in US, in India, everywhere. So there's this history around healthcare in the family and in my own background. And I've always been fascinated by the industry. Though I've not been a doctor, I've been always fascinated by it. And I've been touched by it in many ways. So, you know, I think it was natural at some point I'd find myself doing something in this market. And I'll bet you when you go to family gatherings, you now at least can tell them what you Now at least I am part of the family. (laughs) They understand it right now. (laughs) Exactly. I don't think they understand what exactly what I do, but they know I do something in healthcare. (laughs) So now if I'm not a doctor, there's something I do in healthcare and that's still better than not doing anything. Yeah, exactly. No, I found that when I went into healthcare, I could have richer conversations with my parents about what I did because everyone's a patient. Everyone knows a patient. They at least kind of understand the business, if you will. And the shared mission is really interesting with customers, unlike any other industry, where we work in concert with, again, protecting patient safety. Yeah. The work that you do, Ed, the work that we do here at Assembly truly has a mission to it. Yeah. We are not just building a business. We are saving patient lives is how I see it. And we are hopefully making the health systems better and more efficient with that. That's right. And keeping the bad guys out and allowing their operations to continue in a productive way and obviously making sure that patients are taken care of. So what keeps you up at night as an entrepreneur? So many things, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that does change from year to year. You know that very well, Ed. What Mm -hmm. keeps you up today will not be the same thing that keeps you up next year. (laughs) I would say, you know, part of what keeps me up, among all the great things in healthcare, the rate of adoption in healthcare is slower. And when the market slows down, you know, the overall broad market where it starts slowing down, you have people who think of cybersecurity as sometimes as a, you know, I can postpone this project or I can worry about it next year, or I can do some small piece of it and I can worry about the rest next year, or I can do it only for a subset. And that does worry me both from, you know, you're going to an environment where you're trying to secure them. And then you see problems in the environment and they, they just refuse to see it. And it worries me, you know, what happens if something were to happen in that environment? What would be their impact? That worries me. That keeps you up at night. And then you worry, is this an ecosystem that is not going to understand the problem as deeply as they should? Because we deal with global organizations, I'm seeing this globally. It's not just a US problem or a Europe problem. So that does keep me up at night. If you are in a base where you see the problem, where the industry understands the problem and absorbs it equally across these Spectrum, I think that makes everybody's life easier. Then it's a question of, are you solving the problem the right way? And I think there are budget constraints and there are uh, operational issues as well, which I understand. So I get it, but I think the problem is severe enough that should be in your top three priorities at the minimum. And I does keep me up with that. Many times people don't see it that way. That's uh, right. Yeah. And whether an organization chooses our products or not, they still have to solve the problem. So the problem is they right. must have solved. And that's uh, exactly the point. It, it's so critical. And so, and there's certainly obviously ways to solve it, but that's what makes it interesting. And that's what makes the role of the entrepreneur in some ways so exciting, in some ways such a high risk endeavor. Last year, as you said, pointed out, the last couple of years have been challenging with the pandemic. I think we get certain types of CEO founder badges now, right? Because we live through a pandemic, right? Not every <laughs> not every CEO had the <laughs> Had the yeah. opportunity to live through a pandemic, especially in healthcare. So given some of the challenges we've had, what are you most proud of over the past year or a couple of years, personally and professionally? Professionally, I would say the company has grown. 
through this pandemic. I mean, pandemic brings a lot of uncertainty as you very well have lived through it, Ed. You don't know exactly, you know, when you have investors, like both of us have investors, when you have employees, you are constantly weighing this between what you should and shouldn't do. And then you're getting advice and pressures from all directions. And so taking all of that and then making the right decisions such as the company should grow and you're actually adding value to your customers, adding value to your partners. I think that we have done, I would say decently at least. So I think that is something to look back and say, we didn't just survive, we thrived through the pandemic. Personally, I have two kids. The pandemic gave me more time to spend with the family. And I think mm-hmm. yeah. being a better father, spending more time with the kids is definitely something I look back and say, you know, I'm happy that I could do that. And so that's something to actually look back and be happy about. Yeah, it's so great that you said that. I almost feel guilty when I say that. Like I had a positive experience in the pandemic because I was able to spend more time yes, with my I family. Agree. So uh, I'm glad to hear you say that. You know, our listeners always love to hear about what entrepreneurs would be doing if they weren't doing this. So if you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? What's your other passion? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, I wanted to be different things at different times. I told you about the story of wanting to be a doctor. <laughs> In a different dimension, maybe I am a doctor. Who knows? It was just so close. I could have been one of the two and I chose to be an engineer for a variety of reasons. But I think I would have been a doctor in just, it's a coin toss at that point in time, what happened. But, you know, outside of that, you know, I probably would have gone into sports. I played a couple of sports at an advanced level in college and so on. I probably would have tried my hand at that. Again, if there was money in sports in India outside of cricket, I would have tried that. (laughs) All money goes to cricket in India. So there was no scope. But which sports were you involved in? I was involved a lot in chess at that point and ping pong. So I would have probably picked one of them in in passion. But anyway, so I think... Do you still play chess? A little bit. No, I mean, I've stopped. It takes a lot of time. Four-hour games, I think, I know. (laughs) So time for four-hour games. But I would say outside of that, the other passion I have is economy. Like, so I would have probably been an economist trying to analyze how markets move and international markets move, but that's a more nerdy thing to do. So interesting. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> yeah. So if you could go back in time, what would you tell your 20 year old self? You think that certain things are made the way they are. You think certain things uh, act the way they are. My thing is everything can be changed. All rules were made to evolve. All technologies were made to get better. Pretty much the rules that bind you today will not be there tomorrow. (laughs) And so not to be bound by any rules or anything that appears to be done well, because, you know, every few years, things evolve and rules change and technology changes. And so everything can be done better. That's the thing I would tell my 20-year-old. So I think when you're young, you sometimes think that certain roads are closed and certain things are the way they are. And there is nothing like that. I mean, pretty much anything and everything is going to be done differently in five years from now. And we have seen that evolution. Absolutely. That's such such great advice. And it's certainly interesting how that could apply to culture too. You know, as you think about your culture and what you're building, talk to us about your culture, what makes it different, what you're proud of, and some of the areas that you're thinking about evolving over the next couple of years. Yeah, I would say, look, as a company culture, there's a high amount of uh, innovation that is part of the company culture, which goes back to my fundamental thing, what I've told my 20-year-old. The company is launching new modules every six months, net new modules, not just incremental features, but net new modules every six months, nine months. That's part of how we see the stack that everything can be improved. The second thing I would say is high degree of customer obsessiveness in the company. So you're constantly worried about how does a customer view the product, use the product, you know, engage, how do they operationalize the product? And I think there are constant improvements being made to make sure that enhances them. And there's a high degree of 
collaborativeness inside the company and information flow. So there's a lot of openness and collaborativeness inside the company, coupled with accountability, of course. So I would say the innovativeness, the high degree of customer obsessiveness, and the collaboration with accountability, I would characterize those. From an improvement perspective, I think as a company, you know, this company has been growing. We hired a lot of people. We continue to hire. We continue to grow. I mean, both of us have raised similar amounts of money, which is not a lot, to be honest, but to continue to grow through that, you know, basically, I'm sure you have been capital efficient as well, and so have we. But, you know, as you continue to grow, your operations have to continue to evolve to make sure that things are running smoothly. And that's an area that as the company scales, every company continues to evolve its operations so that the processes and the operations scale seamlessly without having any issues. I absolutely agree with all that as well. I think it's interesting, It's which is what makes growing a company so exciting, especially a tech company, is today's problem is not going to be tomorrow's problem. Yes, and, I agree. Uh, which is, uh, again, for someone like myself who likes to stay stimulated intellectually, <laughs> you have that opportunity every single day to do something different, learn something different from your customers and from the market, from your investors and your board, et cetera. That's right. As we think about that last point, what are some of the hard lessons you learned in your career that really helped evolve the way you think about building a company, building great products, that yeah. customer obsessiveness you talked about? Good question. I'm thinking about it for a second. I would say, uh, you know, I started off as an engineer, right? I mean, more from the fact that I wanted to be a doctor than I became an engineer. I started off as an engineer. And when you become, when you're studying engineering and you're doing everything, you look at the world from a technology lens, like everything is technology, you build great technology. But at some point you realize it's all about people, whether you're selling, whether you're building a company, whether you're running a business unit, whether you're going somewhere, it's all about people. And ultimately, you know, you need to talk to people as a human being, not as a prospect or as a revenue source. You need to talk as a human being and you need to really understand the pain points they have or what is it that they want or what is it their aspirations are if you're actually building the company. You want to understand their aspirations if you want to keep them motivated. And so if you can really master the art of working with people and forming a relationship with people and driving what is important to them, then I think whether or not somebody buys a product or not, I think long-term you'll be successful. Whether or not you make money in the short term, long-term you'll build the right relationships. I'd say the right, because sometimes you just don't want to have a transactional, you want to have a long-term relationship where you're helping people. And I think that lesson that technology is good, everything is good, but fundamentally it comes down to people. For an engineer, it was a hard transition early on in my career because you're made to think as an engineering that the world has to be looked through the lens of technology. Yeah. And when no, you so, so true, so do the true. Shift, yeah, you know, you know, the drill head, you've been in the industry for a long time. Yeah, you, no, it's so true. And it's so great that you came to the realization because, you know, even entrepreneurs that have been in 30, 40 years, they still don't get it. They all think it's about the technology or it's about the operations or, you know, it's a formula. It can be driven formulaically and it, it is always about people and people are very complicated and very complex. Yes. <laughs> and there is no formula. There's no standard cookie cutter approach you can apply to every person is different. And so you got to con continuously adjust, right? So I think that really makes a difference. I mean, by the way, at assembly, like we have almost 0% attrition. Like I wouldn't say almost, we have 0% attrition. And part of the thing is there's a lot of emphasis on people and what their needs are. So that focus on people has been a big shift in my career. Yeah, that's really great. So I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask this question, given that the name of this podcast is Risk Never Sleeps. What is the riskiest thing you've ever done? 
So I would say starting a company is always risky. <laughs> you know that very well, Ed. But I don't know if you know, in LA National Forest, there's a bridge. It's called the Bridge to Nowhere. It's 200 feet above the ground. It was built for something, but it doesn't really go anywhere. It's just a bridge. It's 200 feet above the ground. And below the bridge, there is this faint amount of water that flows, filled with rocks and a little bit of water. And there is a company which takes you, it's an eight-mile hike to the bridge and eight mile back. So totally 16-mile hike in the day. And then you go in the middle of the forest. It's right in the middle of the forest. That's why it's called the bridge to nowhere. And then you do a bungee jump from the bridge right into the water. You've and done this? It, yes, You've I've done, done that. Um... <laughs> and they do it in the evening. So you have the nighttime. It's right in the middle of the forest. It's not like it's like a populated oh. area. You really have to hike through the forest and, and water and so on to get there. So if the forest doesn't kill you, <laughs> you have the bungee. Uh, yeah. And you can do a front jump and a back jump and a back hop. And there are all ways to do it. And I would say not knowing, like I just went with somebody, but I didn't really research on the company or where I was headed. I just decided the bungee jump, I'm going to go for it. Wow. In retrospect, I would probably not do that the same way again. <laughs> <laughs> Only the one time too, right? You just the one go time. back up and do it again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did it four times in that bridge. Just to oh, try you different. You did four times. Well, oh. not four trips, but in one trip, you can actually wait and do it four different ways. And so I did it four times since I was already there. Four different kinds of jumps. Wow. And a different bungee jump actually is not one. Anyway, there are four or five different ways you can do bungee jump. And so I... What was your favorite bungee jump? What's the best way to do it? So it's like a back walk. You just walk casually. Like you don't look at the value. You, you're on a step. You're looking forward and you're just walking backward. Like it's a casual walk and no. you fall straight down. <sighs> You don't jump. You just fall straight down. Like, so you must get like, whipped around, right? Because you're going straight you, down and then you're... You go straight down, like straight. And then when it pulls you up, you feel as if somebody's yanked your stomach for a second. <laughs> it is not fun, but That's fantastic. the experience of suddenly walking and seeing no ground below you is something to be experienced. I love that. I, was that... <laughs> That is fantastic. I was not expecting that, Shankar. Not expecting that. That might be the top riskiest thing anyone has ever done on this this program. That's fantastic. All right. Well, is there anything else you'd like to leave with our listeners? Any other words of advice or considerations? The advice for me is I think risk is real for anybody who's listening to it. Some people say that if you know the risk, but you're kind of aware of the risk, but you don't really know it, then you don't really have to act on it. I think that's not the right way to look at it. Risk is real. I think Risk Never Speaks that you have as a podcast title is perfect title for this. The risk is real. You got to act on it. You got to look at it. I think both of us, Ed, our mission, why we started the company, we could be doing a lot of other stuff. Why we started the company is truly to bring down the risk. And I'm sure you, I'm same with me. I would gladly talk to a customer to advise them if they didn't bring to a, didn't buy a product to really give them our views of what the industry and what they should be doing. My only view is like people should really look at risk as a real thing they have to do and take it seriously and not something that just needs a solution in its yeah. place. Maybe it's not a solution. Maybe it's a process. Maybe it's something. No, it's real. It's not an academic exercise. That's, That's right. A great way to end it. Thank you very much for your time today. This has been fantastic. This thank is Ed Gaudet coming from the Risk Never Sleeps podcast. I want to thank all of our listeners. And if you are on the front lines protecting patient safety, thank you for your service. And remember, everyone, stay vigilant because risk never sleeps. Thanks for listening to Risk Never Sleeps. For the show notes, resources, and more information on how to transform the protection of patient safety, visit us at sensinet.com. That's C-E-N-S-I-N-E-T.com. 
I'm your host, Ed Gaudet, and until next time, stay vigilant because risk never sleeps. Yeah.